This is increment 117 of Hebrews 2020, even though it's 2021 and deep into 2021, and in the spring of 2021, and we are basically at Hebrews 4:14 to 16, but I want to hit a, a few doctrinal points that are sort of circling that whole passage, and I'm trying to get a song out of my head. I didn't know it was a true hymn, but Emery Persinger was just singing, thank God for me, thank God for me. I've never heard that hymn, and I hope that I can get it out of my mind a little bit before we, we start today with the message. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that as the scriptures were exegeted and expounded upon in Nehemiah 8.8 and the the teachers gave the sense, the teaching Levites, the teaching priests, as they gave the sense of the scriptures, the people went out and understood their meaning, and so they were rejoicing because they understood the scriptures properly. So, Father, we're aware of so many who are suffering under a wrong perception of the scriptures, a wrong understanding that the scriptures are not what they think, and we know that the scriptures themselves and the Bible itself is the testimony of Jesus. And we thank you for that. And we pray that today you'll grant us the faith to believe that and the faith which is the substance of things hoped for so that you can lift up many who are humbling ourselves under your mighty hand. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. We see nothing in the scripture of Caesar being crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We do not yet see, says Hebrews 2, 8 into 9, we do not yet see everything having been placed under his feet, with an allusion there to Psalm 110.1, where the father says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We don't yet see everything yet placed under his feet, also in Psalm 8, 4 through 6. We do not see everything placed under the feet of the Son of Man, but we do see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, crowned with glory and honor. And in seeing him, we see the inevitability of everything being submitted to him, and everything will be. And that is promised to us in Philippians 3.20 and 21. In Revelation, which we refer to often here because there's so much crossroads, uh, of a crossroads between Revelation and Hebrews, we see through the supernatural lens of the Spirit that the glory of all the kings of the earth are brought into the new Jerusalem through the always open gates of the heavenly city. Please note that the kings bring their glory into the heavenly city, which is, as we know, the city of the great king. All glory accrues to him, belongs to him. Revelation twenty-one twenty-four shows us that wonderful picture of the pilgrimage of the kings and kingdoms and nations into the always opened gates and through the always opened gates of the new Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Because all the glory 
of all the kings of all the nations belongs to the great king, the king of kings, Jesus, the son of God. For he is the great king. And the heavenly Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Hebrews 11.10, Hebrews 11.16, Hebrews 12.22 and 13.14, where it says here, in contrast, we have no continuing or enduring or abiding city. Not here, not in this evil age. And this can be compared, this city, this heavenly Jerusalem, to passages in Revelation 3.12, 21.2, 21.10, and 14 and 15. 2116, where it's used twice, 2118, 19, 21, 23, Revelation 22, 2, 3, 14, and 19, city, the city, the city, the city, the polis becomes a climactic and repetitive term used in Revelation, as it is a climactic term in Hebrews, especially 12.22. That's where we're going to get our word for Oranopolis if, if the Lord permits a future series following Hebrews, if he does, whether by me or perhaps by someone else. Oranopolis, the city, the heavenly city. And that is the citizenship that we have even now, as the scripture says in Philippians again, Polituma. P-O-L-I-T-E-U-M-A, our citizenship, same root as Paulus, is in heaven. Now, already, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we expect to deliver even Jesus Christ, our Savior, who will not only come and bring salvation, but change or transconfigure the bodies of our present humiliation into a body of glory like he has, And he's able to do this, according to 321, by the omnipotent power which he has to submit everything or subordinate everything to himself. The Father does it, but the Son also does it because the Father and the Son are one in act. Something you can consider. We see through the same lenses, the spectacularly clear lenses of the Holy Spirit, we see the crowns of 24 heavenly elders, presbyteroi, around the throne. We see their crowns being thrown down before the throne of God and the Lamb. Because why? Because all of the glory and all of the honor belongs to our elder brother, Jesus. The book of Revelation itself and in its totality is a melodic movement and a musical buildup leading to a crescendo of glory being directed to God and the Lamb from all of creation in heaven, earth, and the oceanic realms. The new creation is what what it is because it exists for the glory of God and because it gladly praises the God who made and who redeemed it. According to Luke in Acts 12:21 to 23, we have a stark contrast to this glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. King Herod in Acts 12:21 to 23 made a speech and he was lauded by the people who cried out that his voice was that of a god and not of a man. 
It's amazing how people become so sycophantic in our own times and who admire the basest of men rather than worship the God of gods and the God of all kings, the king of all kings. Because Herod did not give glory to God. Paul did when he was said to be Mercury or Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus. They were assumed to be gods. Paul said, don't call us that. He was emphatic about deflecting that glory and giving it to the God of all grace, our Lord Jesus Christ. But because Herod didn't give glory to God, an angel struck him right at the moment, right on the spot, and he immediately became infested and consumed by worms and died. Not a very good way to go, but that's where people's glory goes who take glory to themselves. Herod took the glory to himself that only belongs to God. No man or woman takes the glory due to God to themselves who doesn't pay a deadly penalty for it. Pride always goes before a fall and a haughty spirit always leads to one's destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 and 18, 12 are a couple good verses to go to for that. Better to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and let him elevate us in his time. And if he does elevate and crown us, we will gladly cast our crowns before the throne of God and of the Lamb at the feet of God's Son, Jesus, our great King. If we ever become great, and I use that term advisedly as the psalmist did in Psalm 1835, if we ever become great, it is his gentleness that has made us that. 2 Samuel 22:36, Psalm 18:35, which is the Septuagint 17:36. If we are, in other words, ever promoted, we must recognize that promotion comes from the Lord. He made us, and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 and verse 3. As Psalm 115:1 says, "Not to us, Lord." Not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your reality. And again, to the saints at Corinth, Paul wrote, You are not your own, for you have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6.19b-20 now, we see nothing of, in the scripture of Caiaphas or of any Levitical priest or archpriest crowned with glory and honor as Jesus was. When Jesus made the confession, and he did, to Caiaphas, the great archpriest that year in Jerusalem of the Aaronic order, when Jesus made the confession to Caiaphas in answer to his question, that he, Jesus, was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he indeed was the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, who was to be seen coming in glory. In Matthew twenty-six sixty-four, he was identifying himself as the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek, 
king of righteousness, as well as being the son of God. God's Christ and the man from heaven is who he is, the son of man, the man from heaven. That Caiaphas would see him coming in great glory at the right hand of power. And notice that in Hebrews 1.3, he's at the right hand of majesty. Both power and majesty are what we call circumlocution. They're ways of talking around instead of using directly the name of God. That's kind of a Hebraism or Hebrew way of viewing things. But he is power and he is majesty. Again, that Caiaphas, according to Jesus' words, would see Jesus coming in great glory at the right hand of power means that Caiaphas's eyes would see him along with every eye and he would see Yahweh whom he had pierced by charging him with blasphemy. So no wonder Caiaphas, the archpriest, tore his robes. Now that was a symbolic act. We have a torn veil in Hebrews 10.20, the veil of Christ's flesh. We have a torn robes of a priest here. Caiaphas didn't know it, but he was symbolizing the change of priestly robes that was a change of priesthoods. He was facing the priest who was one forever and in perpetuity after the order of Melchizedek. He was, in essence, the last of the Levitical or Aaronic order, and he was tearing his robes. He did it for another reason altogether, to show his outrage at Jesus' self-testimony. But ironically, he was doing it to demonstrate something far more profound. No wonder he tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed, Matthew 26, 53, 63 to 66 is where this is told. Caiaphas tore his priestly robe as a sign of outrage at Jesus' so-called blasphemy. Ironically, again, and this is a sweet irony of the scripture. Ironically, Caiaphas was manifesting a change of priestly robes that was symbolic of the change of priesthoods. The one whom Caiaphas accused of blasphemy is the one whom God said something a little different about. He said, you are my son, meaning my divine son. Today, I have begotten you which is a statement made to the accession to the throne by a king in Psalm 2.7, which also can be found in Hebrews 1.5 and coming up very soon in Hebrews 5.5. And he also said to the son something different than Caiaphas said. The father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, and you can confer with Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13 to see that directly quoted in our homily. And he also said this to Jesus, you are a priest in perpetuity like Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. That is found just down the road a little bit from Psalm 109.4 Septuagint. In Psalm 109.4 Septuagint, or some, a little down the road from Psalm 110, one is Psalm 110.4, 
which is also cited in Hebrews 5.6, right down the road in our homily, 5.10, Hebrews 6.20, and several other places. So the development of the doctrine of our great high priest as being like or in similarity to Melchizedek is going to take up the heart of the homily. And it will be very important not only for the first century readers, but for us 21st century readers. Now, in the scriptures, and I speak specifically of Psalm 133, we do see Aaron, the high priest, in an honorable position. We see Aaron with the anointing oil poured upon his head, running down upon his beard and then to the collar of his priestly robe, speaking of priestly robes. The oil there is symbolic of the pleasant unity and fellowship of God's people in the Holy Spirit on Mount Zion. Psalm 133.3, Septuagint 132.3, compared with Psalm 2.6, Psalm 48.2, and Hebrews 12.22. Zion is where God commanded the blessing of the life of the age. In keeping with that positive image of Aaron, I said positive image of Aaron, the Hebrews author does the same thing that he did with Moses to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over Aaron as he illustrated the superiority of Jesus over Moses. The writer did not show Jesus' superiority over Aaron by knocking Aaron, as we would say, but rather by showing Aaron's greatness and Jesus' even superior greatness. In the Moses-Jesus comparison, it wasn't Moses bad, Jesus good. It was rather Moses great, Jesus greater. The same method is pursued, and it's a rhetorical method, employed by people like Aristotle and Quintilian, famous rhetoricians. The same method is pursued in the comparison of Aaron and Jesus. It's not Aaron bad and Jesus good. It's Aaron great, Jesus greater. This method is called auxasis, as we've seen before, A-U-X, Long e, it's a kind of a Greek word, but it's auxasis. It is a Greek word, auxasis, and it means not comparing bad with good, but comparing great with greater. Auxasis. It involves kind of an a fortiori argument, if you want to use the Latin form. Auxasis. We learned about that all the way back in increment number sixty-nine, and it's a very effective rhetorical method. And he does this not to alienate his readers if they had great respect for Aaron, because, well, they should have. The trajectory from this point in Hebrews becomes more about the great archpriest than before. And it is all about this great archpriest who has passed through the heavens named Jesus. It becomes earnestly a comparison contrast between Aaron and Jesus, the priest through the age, Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek or Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness again, and who was king of the city called Shalom or Salem, meaning peace. In the profiles of Melchizedek and Jesus, 
together, which we'll see at the heart of Hebrews, righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the words of Psalm 85.10, Septuagint 84.11. In Jesus, it goes on to say, truth sprouted up from the ground, bearing much fruit, and the righteous father peered down from heaven with great pleasure and satisfaction, saying, that's my son in whom I am well pleased indeed. We've been considering that as Christians we have one job. That theme will now hit its pace again a third time in this message. The one job is to hold fast the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and everything it entails and implies. Jesus, the Son of God, is our great archpriest. He's passed into the heavens and through the heavens through the veil that was torn in his death. This is so very important because it's related to instauration or the transformation or the completion of creation by the impact of the cross of Jesus Christ. He has passed through the heavens and through the veil that was torn in his death into the region of utmost holiness and is seated at the right hand of God, his Father, who again by circumlocution, a way of circulating around a word that you don't want to use, and we always want to use the term God, but there's a reverence associated with it. By circumlocution, locution, God is referred to as majesty in Hebrews 1.3 and power in Matthew 26.64 as we just looked at it. In Hebrews, Jesus' exalted status status is balanced, and this is also extremely important. Jesus' exalted status is balanced, and there's such a balance going on through all of this homily. Jesus' exalted status is balanced by the sufferings he endured while here on earth. His heavenly exaltation is balanced by the sufferings he endured here on earth. Jesus' sufferings culminating with his experience of death for everyone while far from God. This suffering is flanked by his pre-incarnation status as the eternal divine son and his post-resurrection status of preeminent exaltation as our great archpriest. Let me say that again because it's really central to Hebrews and to the Bible itself. This suffering, which we refer to sometimes simply as the cross, is flanked by his pre-incarnation status. Let's just call it his pre-incarnation status and his post-resurrection status flanked by these two exalted statuses is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We really can't even think about his pre-incarnate glory without thinking of the cross which he endured, nor can we think of his post-resurrection exaltation as great archpriest who's passed through the heavens without thinking of the torn veil which is his flesh torn on Calvary, on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll say it again. This suffering, which he endured in experiencing death, the wages of sin for all mankind, 
is flanked by his pre-incarnation status as the eternal divine son and his post-resurrection status of preeminent exaltation. So once again, at the heart and center between the heavenly states of the son is the suffering servant, as he's called in Isaiah, for example, really verse chapters 40 through 55, but mostly hits its pace in 52 and 53. At the heart and center between the heavenly states of the Son is the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. In Hebrews 4.14, Jesus has passed through the heavens, but only after suffering for us. There's divine promeity, for example. Now in heaven and exalted beyond measure, he nevertheless suffers with us as he makes intercession incessantly for us. He does it, we could say, with feeling. He does it with compassion. But his compassion, sum pathos, sum pathos, is more than just an expression of sympathy. Our thoughts and prayers are with you, that kind of thing. His is a sympathy that reaches out with the intention of providing real assistance. And that's what he does. He assists us in ways that we can't even imagine through his providence and through his uplifting of our soul and spirit and the many other ways that he intervenes for us to keep us alive in this hostile planet, for one thing, and to keep us focused on heavenly things. So we have this in Hebrews 4:14 to 16, if I may grab a larger chunk than we're used to. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that's the gist of the confession that we hold, let's hold fast our confession. The, in, the incentive to hold fast that confession of Jesus as Son of God is the extensive insight of his great archpriesthood. Verse 15, for we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach with outspokenness the throne of grace so that we may take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help. That's what prayer is. It's taking hold of mercy and finding grace for timely help. Why? Because he is sympathetic with us and assists us. Hebrews 2:17 and 18 began this theme of a merciful and faithful high priest who runs to our aid and runs to our hear our requests. And sometimes he answers them with an immediate timely help, and sometimes the timely help comes at a time we don't expect it, but it's perfect in God's time. Our times, incidentally, are in his hands, says Psalm 31:15. Our great archpriest was tested in every way that we are, and yet, unlike us, he was found to be without sin. He never resorted to sin to relieve the tension of temptation in trials and tests that are simply the result of the human condition. He experienced the depth and the misery of the doleful, human, unhappy condition that we experience, but he did so without sin. He fully experienced the unhappy human condition and yet knew no sin, as Second Corinthians 5.21 put it. As such, 
As we will learn, Jesus was not like the priests of the Aaronic order, the order of Aaron, who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. That's one of the points of contrast. He did not offer sin a sacrifice for his own sins because he knew no sin. And he is not only able to feel with us our sinfulness, but he's also able to assist us so that we don't need to sin in situations where we used to habitually sin, and he strengthens us in times of great temptation. And so, he did no sin, says the scripture. And incidentally, Leviticus 16, 23 and 24 speaks of Aaron and the high priests of the old order offering sacrifices for themselves as well as for the people. And in Hebrews 5, 3, the same thing. Hebrews 9, 7 speaks of offering by the priests of sacrifices that can never take away sin. So the contrast here is Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He was the sacrifice, the sinless lamb of God. Not only did he not offer a sacrifice for his own sins, but he didn't only offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people called Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 1 and 2. But then you probably knew that already. So we won't repeat he was without sin. He did no sin. First Peter 2.22, he was never disobedient or unfaithful to his father or to his father's universally salutary or saving will. His being without sin means that he was qualified to be the unblemished, Hebrews 9.14 and 26, Lamb of God offered as a final unrepeatable sacrifice for all the sins of all humankind for all of time, what we call a universal and thoroughly diachronic deliverance. This is, the, this is what I like to use as a kind of an analogy. This is what I would call the folded flag in our hands that will be unfurled as we continue in our theological exegesis of this first and 21st century homily. This pennant this flag, this signal, this standard is God's banner over us at this time. And his banner over us in a word is love, as Song of Solomon 2.4 says. Kind of love that many waters can't put out. Kind of love that's a fire that can't be put out by many waters. When the enemy comes in like a flood, as he has been and will do, this is the banner that God raises up and the flag to which we rally when the arrows in the air darken the sky. It's our flag in a battle, the outcome of which belongs to the Lord. So Hebrews is the theme of a priestly writer. And I want to do this very quickly as we close this homily today. These last two messages have been sort of like homilies in themselves. I want to read as this flag unfurls, this priestly theme unfurls in Hebrews. And that will involve for us a translation of Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. If you're impatient, this will help you because we're going to move through Hebrews 5, 10. 
and then back up and exegete it, explicate it with far more detail. But nevertheless, this will help the restless among us. But listen to how this theme unfolds throughout the homily so far. Hebrews 1.1, in many parts and in various ways, long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son. That word, the anarthrous word there, means actually the son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, and here's the phrase, who has made purification for sins. That's the first hint of Jesus Christ as priest, our great archpriest, and who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become a much better than the angels, as much better as the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Follow the theme as the flag unfurls, as the signal and standard flag that we look to when the arrows are flying and darken the sky. Listen, Hebrews 2.16, for he has surely not taken hold of and assumed the nature of angels, but he has taken hold and assumed the seed of Abraham. For the same reason that it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering, in other words, the same reason in 2.10, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest, all the way back in Hebrews 2.17, in things pertaining to God, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he's able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. He's able to help those. Notice how that fits with Hebrews 4.15. But follow the theme and we'll close shortly. 3.1, as, as this theme unfolds and the flag unfurls, as it were. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession. That is what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. Jesus, who was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For he, Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. To be sure, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, on the one hand, was faithful as a servant in all of God's house. For a testimony, it says, to what would be spoken in the future. But Christ, as a son over God's house, whose house we show ourselves to be, if only we hold fast, there it is, hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality, the substance of hope for things, in other words, hope for things, until the end. That means until the objective is reached, that of holding till the end what we had at the beginning. Finally, 4.14, almost finally, therefore having 
a great archpriest, see how the theme unfurls, the flag unfolds, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. Look at this flag as the sky is darkened by the archer's arrows of the enemy. Look at this flag, rally to it. Having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession, for we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Look at this flag on the battlefield as the sky is darkened by the arrows of the archers of the enemy. Look at this flag. Therefore, let's approach with outspokenness the throne of grace so that we may be take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help. And here's a foray into the territory where we're going in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. For example, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. This is speaking of every Aaronic priest. And because of this weakness, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. There it is again. That's the Old Testament priest, the old order, the Aaronic priest, Leviticus 16, 23 to 24, and Hebrews 9, 7. Verse 4, moreover, no one takes this honor. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. No one takes this honor, Time, to himself. Instead, one is called by God just as Aaron was, comparison with Aaron. This, thus also the Christ did not glorify himself. We see him crowned with glory and honor. He did not glorify himself to be an archpriest. But the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 7, which is already quoted in Hebrews 1.5. Also says in another passage, you are a priest. The one who says you are my son, the son, Jesus, the son of God, said to him, you are a priest. The very fact that Jesus is a priest representing us gives us incentive and impetus and momentum to hold fast to the confession of Jesus as God's son. See, the one who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, says in another passage, verse 6, you are a priest throughout the age just like Melchizedek the king of Salem, as we'll find out later on in the message or in the homily. Verse 7, who, speaking now of Christ, during the days of his flesh or his life here on earth, he offered both entreaties and petitions with loud crying and tears to the one who was able him able to save him out of the realm of death. Look all the way forward to 1320. And he was heard because of his obedient reverence. Through, or though the Son, referring again back to Hebrews 1, 2, a Son, or the Son, though the Son, he learned obedience, as all sons must, as we learn from Hebrews 12, 6, and 7, through the things he suffered. Please note the paranomasia here in the Greek, you see it, not in the English. Emathen for learned, and epathen for suffered. It's a paranomasia or play on words you can't see in the English translation. So again, he learned obedience 
through the things he suffered. Moreover, having become complete, that means complete through suffering, if you go back to Hebrews 2.10, and he became complete has to do with an educational metaphor, meaning he graduated, he became a graduate, and therefore, again, having become complete, he is the source of eternal salvation. He became completed or graduated as the source of eternal or salvation, age-abiding salvation. And that word is interesting, too, because the word source, itios, has to do with someone who endured the death penalty. But that's for another time. We're going to have to explicate this. The source of age-abiding salvation. David Bentley Hart has salvation in the age having been designated by God archpriest like Melchizedek. See how the flag unfolds? Look to the flag. Look to the signal flag. Follow the colors as the arrows of the archer fly to the degree where they block out the sun. So in closing, the PT here is on a roll in his priestly theme, but he has to stop after 510. He has to stop. And he does so due to his discerning sensitivity to his readers and listeners. The Spirit evidently intimated to him that they aren't yet prepared to receive the advanced education. Are you? Am I? And so they need a bit of educative and hortatory interlude, one that includes a very intense and stern and even fearful warning. After all, the PT, like Paul and his associates from the 1st to the 21st century, are charged with proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and with teaching and warning everyone we can, Colossians 1, 13, 27 to 28. Before we get to that important interlude, we're going to continue considering Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10. The interlude is 5.11 to 6.20. It's important. Then the heart of the comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the great king of Salem. Thank you, Father, for yet another opportunity. And now that we have experienced another message through the Holy Spirit and through your word, we again entrust our spirits to you, not just for the perception of your word, but now for its application. Grant us the grace to hold fast the confession and to look and rally around the standard that you raise up when the enemy comes in like a flood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.